CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. Shaky Knees Music Festival begins today, and soon flocks of fans are going to be streaming into Atlanta's Central Park. One of the acts that you can catch this afternoon. I feel so blue without you, girl. I need your love. That's why I'm down. You're not around now. I need your love. Atlanta-based soul and R&B musician Curtis Harding. You're listening to his song, Need Your Love, as we kick off a conversation with Curtis, who's back home joining me now in the studio. Hello and welcome. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. So you were actually born in Saginaw, Michigan. I was. But your family came to Atlanta when? When you were in your teenage years? Yeah. Um... Like 23 years ago, mm-hmm. um, my mother and my father are both um, from from the South. Mother's from Alabama. My dad's from Tennessee. I mean, you moved around a lot before that, right? Yeah, quite a bit. So quite Atlanta, bit. do you feel like it's home? Of course. Yeah, I have a lot of family. My immediate family's here. My mom, my my pops, and who are my your your dad's a mechanic. Your mom, Dorothy Harding. Uh, was very involved in church and a traveling mm-hmm. gospel singer. So you started performing with her at a pretty young age. What are some memories of that time? Do you remember like your first time on stage? I do not remember my first time on stage, uh, which goes to show I was very young. Um, I do have memories of of singing with her on multiple occasions and with my sisters and, and family, other family members and just people in the congregations across America. In so church. You've been singing in front of people for a really long time. Yeah, for a long time. Is it old hat to you, or does it still feel new and exciting when you're doing it? It's, uh, it is an old hat. I've been doing that for a long time. <laughs> been wearing that it. hat for a while. <laughs> so microphone always close to your mouth. Microphone check. <laughs> <laughs> that must be something, though. You know, the audience comes to those shows. They always want to hear the hits. So what is that like for you? You know, they want to hear Need Your Love again. Well, you know, the cool thing about songs like that is that it excites people and makes them happy. So, but it's it's just a, it's just a song. It's just like any song that that I have to do over and over again. It's, it just becomes a repetitive, mm-hmm. monotonous kind of. You got to figure out some way to make it new. Yeah, you have to find new and creative ways to present them to yourself first, and then to the audience to to keep it um, new and exciting. I don't know because it's like once I record the song, actually, I'm kind of just done with it. I was like, all right, this is what it is. Okay, you're that kind of a creative guy. Yeah, I like to move on. Yeah. I like to keep them, keep them coming. We're trying to decode Curtis Harding right now. <laughs> 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 well, outside of singing with your mother, you started your own music, your career with a number of collaborations, hip-hop group Proceed. And while doing promotion for LaFace Records, you met CeeLo Green. Where did that, right. that bring you? Um, it brought me to musical collaboration with him, writing... Uh, sang backup uh, for him for a number of years and just a lot of uh, relationships and friendships that are still alive and blooming this day mm-hmm. so yeah, it, was, it was good and you sang on his album 2010 Lady Killer there was a track there that you co-wrote called Grand Canyon if I could, I'd walk right across the What do you remember of that song? Or did you have you already moved on from that? 
I have actually, you know what? I haven't revisited that song um, in a long time. I think that was that song actually came out on the special edition CD. If I'm not in those days, it was CDs. <laughs> I remember what those are. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was that was a beautiful song. You also collaborated with Cole Alexander of the band The Black Lips. We just spoke to them last week. They're also playing at Shaky Knees. So you've you know performed this variety of gospel, soul, R and B, and so. After collaborating with so many different people, how did you find your own sound with that? Um, you just kind of, you you take the good things from, you know, very selfishly from people that you work with and you add them to your repertoire and you just, you keep it you keep it going in a, in a positive fashion. You've called your own style of music slop and soul. What does that mean? Um, nothing and everything at the same time. <laughs> All right, I need you to decode that for us. Well, at the time... Um, I figured if I didn't call it something, somebody else would. So I was like, hmm, what can I call it? You know, like the Black Lips had Flower Punk and the Growlers had Beach Goth. I was like, all right, Slop and Soul sounds good. But Slop and Soul, I mean, those two together. Well, yeah, you know, Soul is the foundation. Um, And just Slop is, to me, at the time I was and not a very good guitar player and still kind of just like getting my chops up. And, you know, it's like on the farm, Slop is what you give the pigs. And it's a amalgamation of just like everything that you that's from the table and feed and whatever else that helps sustain the farm and it flows and it's funky it's runny sometimes you know and it, it, it sustains the farm so I was like all right that that makes sense you know my music is a mixture of different genres and different ideas so always and still being influenced by my friends by by art in general um, just people conversations that I have yeah, slop and soul with soul being the foundation. So that's where that came from. Are there any conversations like, you know, a young musician might ask you, what's something somebody told you that really made a difference? Any of those come to mind? I know you're halfway hmm. through your first cup of coffee now, so. <laughs> hmm, some advice, huh? There's someone, or just a conversation. Uh, one time, a guy told me I was going through a very dark time. He was like, Curtis, you know, the darkness is fine. You you will find you, always find you. Just seek out the light, you know. So that was something that always stuck with me. Um, as far as just like vocally, CeeLo told me one time, he was like, you know, you don't have to push it all the way with your with your vocal styles. You just have to like mean it. So sometimes you, you just do like a, a simple run. But the way he put it, it was like, in terms of like you just you don't have to commit murder <laughs> first time you go you just do a simple assault and battery and I, I was like oh okay all right that makes I think that makes sense like it, which means what he was saying is like you don't have to be so in in singing you do like a bunch of runs sometimes it's like oh you go all over the map with your but sometimes you just have to just sing it to the point to where you mean what you say and then people would get it so oh that's yeah. I, it reminds me of what who was it art blakey said that sometimes in the music it's the pauses yeah. like you don't have to be yeah. throwing it at it exactly. all the time you don't have to throw it out there all the time so as long as you mean what you say like i said you don't technically have to be the best singer you just have to like mean it sing it, sing it with feeling well let's hear a little bit of you meaning it this is from uh, your 2014 album soul power this is freedom Wherever you go, Smiling on you from afar That is Curtis Harding singing Freedom. That is from his 2014 album. Now he's here in Atlanta. He's going to be performing at Shaky Knees this afternoon at 2 o'clock. 
really something to see. But, all right, so you you don't push it all the time, but you do have a really broad vocal range, including a distinctive falsetto. Was that something that you naturally developed singing with your mom, or did you ever you know take lessons? No, I never took lessons. It was definitely something natural that just happened. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, wow, I can do that. <laughs> That's cool. So, you know, it's just a thing that just happened. Don't know where it comes from. And you got to test it all out there singing with your mom. How did? And so was she encouraging you on? Was she, I don't know, somebody that I think oftentimes when you're with a parent, mm-hmm. there's a whole different dynamic there. There's pride. There's joy. What was it for you and your mom, do you think? Uh, she encouraged me to, to sing in church. She didn't encourage me to do other stuff. That's That's the only thing she wanted me to do. Did she, you know, there are the old stories of people's parents don't want them to get away from the church music. Uh, of course not. Uh, no, nah, she she was adamant about me staying, um, just doing gospel music and doing what she wanted um, or what she thought that, you know, I should do. Then let's talk about your music. A few years later in 2017, you release your second album, recorded in New York with some production from Danger Mouse and Sam Cohen. It's called Face Your Fear. What does that mean? You talked earlier about... Being told to find the light, what does it mean to face your fear? I mean, you know, you just have to, uh, I think that when people are are afraid, you're kind of easily manipulated into doing certain things. And if you face your fear, even small things, just like, you know, fear of flying or something, then you're, you're, you leave yourself open to, to gain new experiences and learn, possibly learn and meet people that you might have never even thought you would know. And that that opens you up to like, you know, a brighter future, um, broadens your horizon. So super simple. Let's hear a little bit from that album. This is the opening track. It's called Wednesday Morning Atonement. There was something So this is a story we're hearing there of a father missing his children. What inspired this? Um, not recording for a long time. I was uh, I was kind of on a hiatus trying to figure out what I wanted to do next and who I wanted to work with. And I felt like I was neglecting music and just songwriting. So um, those were kind of your children in right, a way that exactly. you were trying to grow. Exactly. So that's where that that's where that concept came from. But I mean, it took it kind of took on a deeper meaning. Um, once the song came to to life, to fruition, and it's, it can be translated into a, a song about a father who, like, literally has been missing his children. So, but for me, it's it's about music and atonement. That is a that is a word that has a lot of different a lot of mm-hmm. different layers of meaning. Right. Um, I'm wondering about you know the kind of redemptive spirit from. That old gospel tradition does that does that still carry something for you? <laughs> yeah, I believe so. Mm. It's there, but I mean, that's once the song was done, that was the atonement that was that that happened for me. The kids were birthed there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, I, that was it. That was the apology. Twenty eighteen yeah. was a huge year for you too. You released two singles, "It's Not Over" and "Where We Are," and you embarked on a U.S. and European tour opening for Lenny Kravitz. What was that experience like? Was, big, big arenas, I'm guessing. Big yeah, shows. We, we played some Roman coliseums, like literally. It was, it was wild. It was great. Lenny is really down to earth, 
but he is a rock star. He's one of the last rock stars, in my opinion, and in a lot of other people's opinions, too, that I've talked to. But it was a great experience just to see that, um, just to see him live on that, on that sort of scale and still killing it night after night, mm. him and his band. So he's got, he's got to make friends with those songs over and over again, too. Yeah. Yeah, he does. But they find a way to do it. You know, it's, I, I think it's, <laughs> it's this, he definitely plays in a different arena a different it's a it's a different kind of uh vibe and it's a great vibe and it's one that i appreciate and that um i don't think is done anymore on that scale we've lost a lot of people like in the past three years three or four years that knew how to do that night after night because it wasn't just about it's about the music always but it's but being able to put on a performance Mm. you know it's like something completely different than just getting up there and just playing a song so being able to do that night after night is amazing to see. And I think that people are going to miss Lenny when he decides to hang it up. Well, as we wrap up, you're performing just after two today at the Petrie stage at Shaky Knees. What's it like to be the hometown act for a big festival like this? It's great. I get to, like, lay on my sofa and roll up to the venue, out to the park. <laughs> And, and play some shows, then go back and lay on my sofa <laughs> for a second at least. Well, thank you for pausing from all of that to talk with us uh, today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Curtis Harding, Atlanta-based soul R&B musician, let's say slop and soul musician, performing at Shaky Knees Music Festival today at 2 o'clock. And we're going to leave you with another song from Curtis Harding called Where We Are. Peace! Coming up, Beyonce stopped the world again when she dropped Homecoming. Up next, take a seat at the table with Christine and Deneen as they dig through its many layers of meaning. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more on Second Thought. We walked around till the sun went down as the skyline played the stars. We are back with On Second Thought. GPB Education is celebrating Georgia STEM Day today, and we're joining them to highlight kids who excel at science, technology, engineering, and math, like these. Getting to work with other students that are interested in engineering from a young age kind of prepares you for all of the collaboration that engineering as a field requires. First Lego League really, it focuses on developing problem-solving skills while incorporating STEM and fun into learning. Those kids participated in the first Lego League World Competition. And you can find lots more inspiration and practical tools for learning at gbb.org education on this Georgia STEM Day and every day. Beyonce's bleacher-thundering, exquisitely choreographed performances at the Coachella Music Festival in 2018 showed a performer at the top of her game. Queen Bee managed to stop the world again with the release of Homecoming, a live double album and Netflix documentary about what it took to put those two successive weekend productions together. Homecoming has been dissected and analyzed and picked apart in so many ways, but we wanted to get a deeper point of view. And who better to navigate those nuances than Christine White and Deneen Milner? They're co-hosts of GPB's A Seat at the Table, and now they're jumping into this seat.
This is Christine White. And I'm Deneen Milner, and we are co-hosts of Georgia Public Broadcasting's A Seat at the Table, and this is For the Culture. Today, we're breaking down the cultural significance of Homecoming, a film by Beyonce, the mega superstar made her legendary 2018 Coachella performance, a documentary for the streaming service, Netflix, and it came out a couple weeks ago. It was a huge deal. Okay, can I just tell you that I had a party, like a whole lot of other people, when it came on. I plotted out, we had food, we had drinks, and we all wore hot pants, and we (laughs) sat on the sofa, and we turned on that show, and I think I might have had my fist in the air the entire time. It was so beautiful in so many different ways, and today we're going to explain why. It was empowering. Monikered Baychella, because she took over Coachella, the biggest festival, music festival in the country that brings in about 100,000 people. Beyonce was the first black woman to headline Coachella in its 20-year history. And that is a big deal. But what she brought to the stage is a bigger deal. Absolutely. But you... You know, when she opened it with Lift Every Voice and Sing, Mm, mm, mm. you knew exactly where she was going with Mm, it, right? mm, mm, Because mm, Lift Every Voice and Sing is what? It is the the Black National National Anthem. Anthem. That is everything to every black person in America. So the Black National Anthem was written by James Weldon Johnson in the 1900s, who used to work for the NAACP. That song became the official song of the NAACP and then became just a rallying cry in churches and schools for black people all over America and re- ultimately all over the world. It is in multiple hymnal books across the world in uh, multiple translations. The song is just a a cry for folks who are seeking liberation. And the fact that Beyonce started her show with this song that as a graduate of an HBCU Spelman College in the house, hey, um, we started every ceremony with Lift Every Voice and Sing. And of course, as you know, growing up in like black church, there's so much of that energy, so much of that music in what we grew up in. And so it's, it's just it, it was a message to all of us who know how powerful that song is. And she was really making a statement. I mean, she didn't really say it's kind of messed up that she's the first black woman, but she did say she did kind of say that. <laughs> <laughs> she said it with an expletive. As a matter of fact, when she sang that song, I knew that she was being really subversive. Like what I was about to see mm. was about to be some of the blackest stuff that I'd ever seen. So why do you say at subversive? I, subversive because, you know, when a black person stands up in front of a predominantly white audience like Coachella right. is, right? There's, right. you know, it's it's a sea of white faces and like a couple of pieces of pepper sprinkled in. Mm-hmm. And when you stand up and you sing the black national anthem to a sea full of 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 white people, I say that you're being subversive because you know that they don't know right. what, uh, you know, what lift every voice and sing is and specifically what it means when we hear it. Right. We, what it, means it, 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 it digs into the soul. It, it takes you back to Sunday morning 
morning right. when you stood up in church and it was what you sang before you sang anything else. You sang that song and you sung all four verses and <laughs> all the words, right? And you sang it with your fist in with the air. Your fist in the air. And so that she was standing on stage and she opened up after that regal walk. Introduction, yes. <laughs> that regal walk, right? And then she stood up and she said, I'm the first black woman to headline Coachella. And then she opened up with Lift Every Voice and Sing. I knew that what she was about to do was for me. Right. Everybody right. else was allowed to watch, but what she was doing was doing it for me. Well, Beyonce told Vogue magazine that she didn't think the audience would completely understand but they would feel the essence and the spirit of what she was trying to bring. And in addition to bringing that historic black history to the stage, she also infused us. She gave us a bird's eye view into what it is to be at a HBCU. I mean, every single element of the show was peppered with with a homage to HBCU culture at an HBCU. The homecoming is really not about the football game. It is about the band and the band performance. Halftime is Half daytime. Right? Listen, <laughs> halftime is game time. Halftime is showtime. It is the highlight of the year. That's the right. fact that she named this whole movie Homecoming is just I'm a tip of the hat. But everything from the costumes to the choreography to the way that she entered with with the dance team and the way that the the uh, drum line held their drums and danced the way that historically black bands dance, which is very different than the way a band dances at a PWI, a predominantly white institution. Right, right. At a PWI, it's still sort of harsh angles, lines. Um, and sometime in the 60s or the 50s, the bands at historically black universities started to change the way they do band choreography, the way that they do band arrangements. Mm -hmm. And so they started intermixing contemporary music with old school music and like your favorite DJ. Right. When the band starts to play, you know the song and the whole stadium goes crazy Absolutely. because you didn't expect them to play the Gap Band. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, Uncle Frankie and Beverly and them, right? Yes. And, and so that, what I loved, well, you know, I went to a PWI. A yes. Dominantly White Institution. And got a great education, I'm and sure. And got a great education, but you know I got more education around homecoming time because we would hop in the car yes. and drive down. We would find a, 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 a HBCU and we would show up just so that we could watch halftime. Listen, That's it what is a felt good pilgrimage for most folks to come. To, and whether you went to a HBCU or not, it's an opportunity for you to just bask in the beautiful culture that is an explanation of everything that we've been through from everywhere. You know, it's interesting because African-American folk, we were discriminated against and we were marginalized for so long. And in so many ways, we came up with this very unique culture. And the culture regionally had its own culture. But when you go to a historically black college or university, the cultures collide from all those regional cultures, the Midwest, the Southeast, the West. Amen. Amen. You're listening to Deneen Milner and Christine White from A Seat at the Table. And this is for the culture. We're recapping Beyonce's iconic homecoming film on Netflix. 
So we know that this was an homage to HBCUs because she and her team did a lot of research. They actually hired somebody straight from Georgia. They hired Don Roberts, who is a band consultant. He used to be the band director for Southwest DeKalb High School, which is a mighty, amazing band here in DeKalb County. So if you recognize people on the stage during the performance, it might be because they came from a high school that you went to here in Georgia, and a lot of them ended up going to HBCU. Hey, so what 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 was your favorite part? What how did it make you feel? Because I know when we were sitting on the couch and we were watching, it was just Beyonce is a force in and of herself. Yes, she is. She was so vulnerable. So there were these outtakes between performances where she talked about being a mother, mm-hmm. where she talked about having a difficult pregnancy. She showed herself with no makeup on, right? <laughs> I mean, and still fine. And still fine. <laughs> she came in there jiggly with baby weight. We saw her mess up in rehearsal and she actually said, "I didn't think I would ever be able to do this." Now she did. She made it happen. It right. may have taken 17-hour days, but there was something to be said about the determination and people online and on social media the next day were saying, you think that you have prepared. Beyonce (laughs) doesn't just get on stage and do her thing with 200 people and everybody synchronized. No, they practice 20 hours a day, maybe 20 is a lot, but 17 hours a day for months. I mean, we saw that they were practicing Six, seven months for eight months the for eight months, right in, after, and right after she dropped those babies, her twins. In, yeah, so right. I mean, it's just another, I don't know, reference to the strength and the creativity of Black people, and she referenced that all throughout. Well, that's what I that's what I particularly loved because it was just an homage to Blackness, yeah. right? It was she wasn't afraid to stand up on that international stage and say, "This is us." So it wasn't to me just about HBCUs and yeah. homecoming. It was about Black people. When yeah. you hear um, a reggae song. Yeah. Yes. Inter- interwoven in there, and you see everybody doing the dances and the wine, dirty wine, right? <laughs> yes, and she's saying, you know, there's something beautiful about black bodies, yes, and the way that they move and the way that they flow and how they, um, they're just beautiful. She made you look. Really look, stop and look. Don't just see the whole spectacle, but stop and pay attention to what she's saying. She's saying, look at these bodies. Some of them are skinny. Some of them are big. Some, not everybody is what, you know, and I'm saying air quotes here, is perfect. Right. And they are moving their bodies in a way that is just pure art. And she was making everyone look at the black body in a different kind of way. I appreciated that as a black woman who spent, you know, an enormous amount of time, you know, feeling a way about my shape and how it didn't fit into into pop cultural and societal standards. And so to have this woman standing up and performing for my daughter, for your daughter, for all of these other people who aren't necessarily fighting that fight every day and need to understand what's truly beautiful 
the, the, the human body and movement is beautiful, not necessarily what you have in your mind as perfection. That meant something, yeah, right? And yeah. that was way bigger than just, you know, like how syncopated the drum line was right. or how dope the twins were when they were right. doing their dance in front of everybody. <laughs> and that's that was the, the, the cultural significance well, for me. It was intentional, right? right? She was very intentional about bringing performance art that grew out of a tradition of segregation of historically black colleges and universities. And we know that these institutions struggle. They struggle to, to find funding. They they are attacked from, you know, from the government. They are attacked from folks who think that, you know, HBCUs is a thing of a past. Right. And so we kind of have to struggle to, to um, explain our identity and explain our culture. And she brings it to the forefront and says it's worthy. It doesn't have to be explained. It doesn't need to be explained. It's worthy just the way it is. And the intentionality was shown through the way that she used the quotes, the quotes from right. Maya Angelou, right. the quotes from Nina Simone right. that said, black people are beautiful right. and we are a part of the human makeup and all of us can appreciate the culture of black folks. It wasn't just for black folks, although the Nina Simone quote was specifically about black folks recognizing their own beauty. Absolutely. But Beyonce knew she was in front of an audience of white folks and she wanted them to recognize That's right. the beauty of black people, particularly in this history that we have here in America that has been so hurtful and harmful to Absolutely. black people and continues to be. So, you know, she has really grown as an artist and grown as a woman in her identity as uh, a black woman, as a feminist. I mean, she is bringing everything to the table. And and that's what I love about her growth as, you know, and, and as an artist. Well, I didn't see this coming for Beyonce, who was in, you know, started out in, in Destiny's Child. You know, she was singing, I don't think you ready for this jelly and, right. you know, bugaboo. <laughs> and, you know, they were great pop songs. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that never did we imagine that this little girl from tech from from Houston, Texas, Texas. Right. With this country accent. Yes. And this, you know, like this, this black girl Coke bottle, uh, you know, body, body mm -hmm. would be standing in front of an international stage and pointing at us mm -hmm. and saying, look at us. Look, look at, at how, how beautiful, beautiful this are. is. Yes. Right? I mean, but, you know, her dad graduated from Fisk. Another shout out to HBCU. <laughs> her mom is Creole from New Orleans. That's I mean, right. or from Louisiana. Right. I mean, so she has this very deep heritage. And even though she was a teenager when Destiny's Child first came out, we see the evolution of Beyonce. And that person is the person who gave scholarships to people who go to HBCUs after this performance. Um, who's reaching out to communities and doing good work. I mean, writing all manner of checks to folks to help them out. So, we, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of what she has become. And I loved, I can't wait to see who she's going to become and who these babies are going to become. Mm. Ooh, and, oh, and there's three of them. You know, man. she said inter intergenerational wealth yes. by Elva and Elva. Amen. I am Denine Milner, and this is Christine White, and we are hosts of Georgia Public Broadcasting's A Seat at the Table. We're talking about Beyonce. When we come back, we're going to talk about Beyonce, the woman, the businesswoman, the businesswoman who manages to use her art and her culture and her love of us to get paid. Yes. <laughs> this is For the Culture.
From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is Christine White and Deneen Milner. We're co-hosts at a seat at the table, and this is For the Culture. I wanted a black orchestra. I wanted the steppers. I needed the vocalists. I wanted different characters. I didn't want us all doing the same thing. And the amount of swag is just limitless. And um, I wanted every person that has ever been dismissed because of the way they look to feel like they were on that stage. And that's what I absolutely loved about (laughs) Homecoming and what I love about Beyonce because she has grown into this artist who uses her art to make very specific social statements. And with Homecoming, the very specific statement for me Mm -hmm. watching it was um, that black people are beautiful, that our culture is beautiful, that our traditions are amazing, and that even if you don't know what they are, you've never witnessed them before, you're going to see this magic. And that's what I absolutely loved about that. Lemonade, the album, did very much the same thing. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, that sort of shined a light on black women. I feel like that's how she came. I think Lemonade, for me, represents when Beyonce fully realized her womanhood. Her like, power. Right, her yes. power as a woman. And just... The things, you know, when you get to that point right. in your life where you go from Listen. child to, right, to grown, girl to grown woman. woman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm not fitting into whatever little box that you thought you had me in. I'm not going to sit here and cater to what you think I should be. Right. I'm going to use my mind, my my power, and my magic for myself. And you can either get on this train while right. I'm, you know, leading it, or you can just go ahead and drop, and jump off. And the world really responded interestingly to Beyonce and when she came out with Lemonade, because, I mean, if you remember the SNL clip where the folks are sitting watching Lemonade, and then all of a sudden they go, wait, Beyonce is black? <laughs> Beyonce's black. Beyonce's black. I mean, it was hilarious because that's how a lot of folks responded. She had never talked about or shown or expressed her her cultural heritage in a way that made white folks a bit uncomfortable. I mean, in some of our conversations with some white women, they were like, I was uncomfortable watching Homecoming. I was kind of uncomfortable watching Lemonade because they're not used to seeing black women express themselves fully. You remember what happened when she came on to the Super Bowl halftime show dressed up like Black Panthers. Oh, yes. Oh, how could we forget that? Absolutely. She does actually, now that I think about it, every single time she gets on the stage, she has a statement to make. Back to Lemonade, though, she had a visual album. Right. And the imagery of this visual album was phenomenal. It was based on the coast somewhere in the south, and you could see the moss hanging from the trees. That's right. And what we realized for some of us who had been exposed to this culture was that she was really paying homage to this film from the 90s, Daughters of the Dust. Which was my absolute obsession. I saw it in, I believe, junior year. And I'm I'm from New York, right? So I had never been exposed to that sort of thinking of the South. My parents, my mom is from South Carolina, my dad's from Virginia. My mom comes from a Gullah culture. But, you know, I grew up in Long Island. That wasn't really what she sort of brought to the table, so to speak. Um, And so to see that movie and see these that movie by Julie Dash, who is this amazing 
amazing filmmaker yes. who celebrated um, the coast of uh, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and North Carolina. Yes. Um, and sort of what happened uh, with the great migration of this one family that had been on this same island, Sapelo Island, for century, or, or well, through yes. slavery, right? right. For decades, right. for, for, for de generations, for, right. for generations, and they are, you know, there. There's a sort of a test of wills between the ones who want to stay on their ancestral land, or at least the 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 ancestral land that they were brought to here, right? right? And those who wanted to start a new life by moving up north right. and become uh, more, uh, you know, to adopt a different kind of culture, and so it's. This magic, this beauty, this culture, this very specific way of being that was explored in that movie. And I became obsessed with the coastal lines of, you know, the South specifically because of that movie. That is so interesting that you had that reference point. I was not introduced to Daughters of the Dust until I saw Lemonade. Oh. And as a black woman growing up in Georgia, I feel like I should have known this history. <laughs> like somebody was holding out on me. Right. But I'm going to tell you that the fact that it took a pop star in the 2000, what was it, 12, right. 14, right. to share this piece of of amazing black culture that was overlooked and marginalized. And I think to Beyonce's point, she wants everyone who's ever felt marginalized to feel represented through her work. Absolutely. And boy, what a goal to set as an artist. Absolutely. I mean, she just takes the bar up higher and higher every album, right. every performance, right. every year. Well, you know what she did with Beyonce, right? The the self-titled um, album with no. Beyonce. That's when I really felt like she was starting to make some statements. The whole album was about her celebration of feminism, yes. right? Absolutely. And just her finally recognizing that she's woman mm -hmm. and that she has very specific things to say about what it means to be a woman in society that doesn't make as much money as a man, right. that uh, has to sort of take a backseat to the patriarchy, right. that doesn't have the kind of voice that is always looking to, like she said in Pretty Hurts, look pretty right. for everyone, fit into everybody's yeah. standards of beauty. And so she, I feel like she, uh, there was Started, an awakening yeah. there, yes. right? And then Lemonade was like the exclamation point. Like, yes. okay, now y'all know, you know from, you know, Beyonce that I'm a woman and, and, and Lemonade, we're going to talk about how, how I'm going to use my powers as a woman to get exactly what I want. And I appreciated that she was like, yeah, you're Jay-Z, but guess what? But I'm good. If you want to act up, me and my baby, we going to have a good life. <laughs> me and my baby, we going to be all right. We going to live a good life. Homie better grow up. Okay. I mean, we needed to hear that all right. across America right. that you going to walk away from a man like Jay-Z because you are absolutely everything and everything you will ever need you Absolutely. are enough you are worthy that's the point and right. i think that she's done a great job of personifying that i mean when i watch beyonce on stage i get goosebumps mm -hmm. and it's probably just the the conviction and her confidence and so i'm really thankful that i have this opportunity to to listen to her yeah yeah, Beyonce is amazing. You're listening to Deneen Milner and Christine White. We're the co-hosts of A Seat at the Table, and this is For the Culture.
You know, what I loved about just circling back to Beyonce and the the actual album, Beyonce, um, I love that she had something to say about black love, right? Because yeah. that was before, you know, Jay-Z messed up. She would, that was a whole, <laughs> whole, that was a whole homage to, you know, the beauty of being in a loving, healthy relationship that had multiple conversations yes. some of it sexual yes. some of it about you know maintaining a healthy relationship mm-hmm. outside of sex some of it maintaining a healthy relationship with yourself so that you can be your full self for your partner mm-hmm. i really appreciated how she talked about relationships there yeah. and then of course the other conversation about relationships that came when she and Jay-Z made their album together, Everything is Love, right? Because that um, brought in a whole nother conversation that was an absolute cultural, social touchstone for uh, for men right? Um, as much as it was for women. So, it was about forgiveness. Right. It was about long suffering. It was about hold, staying in there, but maybe not this ride or die philosophy that we were taught in the 90s, that we just supposed to do whatever and kill ourselves for our men. No, there was some balance there. She holds these these seemingly disruptive ba- these disruptive identities at the same time in balance. So she can hold being a lady, but also kind of being a freak. And she can hold being a black woman, but also being a citizen of humanity. Right. And she can hold loving her man, but also I'm not going to take no mess. That's right. You know, so I love that about Beyonce because we are full people and we are sometimes, you know, a walking contradiction. Right. But we don't have to fit, like you said, into any one box. And she proves that to us over and over again. She also, for someone who has spent a lot of time in Georgia, is unapologetic about her Southern roots. Which I love. I Which got hot I sauce love. in my bag, swag. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's just something to be said about the fact that the South has not always been revered. Right. Well, when we think about the South, and this is speaking, I got hand raised in the air because I was raised in the North. Right. And when we thought about the South from up there, um, you know, it was always sort of the negative parts right. of the South. We're talking about the Civil Rights Movement. Jim Crow. And, um, Jim Crow. KKK. And, and all of the ugliness that came with trying to settle right. um, the races and right. the relationship between the races. But we don't necessarily think about the beauty right. of Southern culture, right. the food. Right. We're talking about the traditions. We're talking about the accents. Right. And I, like, that, I could sit and listen to a Southern accent <laughs> like I'm watching a movie. It and is that pure deep, poetry. rich <laughs> culture of the South, which, you know, some of it changed when folks migrated to the North, mm-hmm. but some of it, you know, stayed true. And I think that that's why we're seeing a Southern revival here right. in Georgia. I think that's why so many folks are flocking to Atlanta and flocking to other parts of the South, Mm -hmm. flocking to other parts of Georgia, because they see that there's so much depth and richness in the culture. And it's particularly as we get back to like those values of grandmama who had the farm, who had her little garden, who used to eat the tomatoes right off the vine. And, you know, everything, every meal had something that was that was made out in the backyard or that had been canned from the spring. All of those values, those those spiritual touch points. I mean, Beyonce prayed 
You showed she showed right. herself praying. That's right during this Netflix a documentary. Very southern. Yes. experience for sure so i think that there's just something to be said about owning who you are not that one is better than the other i mean i love y'all from long island y'all are cool too <laughs> lots of culture up there i'm just saying georgia <laughs> south carolina north carolina texas louisiana alabama mississippi let me not forget nobody we have something to say as outcast said the south got something to say the south got something to say and beyonce has something to say too too, and that is, you best to have my monies. Oh, my goodness. Can we talk just real quick mm-hmm. about how girlfriend flipped? Um, we're not sure just how much she made. I know that right. she hasn't made been this, confirmed. Right. But somewhere between $10 million and $12 million, ironically, the same amount that Ariana Grande made. And nothing against Ariana Grande. I think she cute. She has a good <laughs> voice. I, I she doesn't have her music, as many Grammys she, as Beyonce. And she is not Beyonce, period. It doesn't, yeah. even if, it doesn't even matter if she had 20 more Grammys than Beyonce. She is not Beyonce, okay? But... You know who is Beyonce? Beyonce. <laughs> well, she's a boss. I mean, right. she, not only did she negotiate this incredible deal with Coachella so that she could have the rights to her performance and be able to distribute it, then she went and flipped it with Netflix. And I think it was a $60 million deal that they said for right. three movies. So right. this is only the first film from right. Beyonce. Right. She's got two more coming up with Netflix. I mean, this is an incredible power move. And we've seen Jay-Z and Beyonce make these moves before, but they're not just making moves for their own pocketbook. That's they're right. contributing back to the community. I cannot tell you how many of my aunties love to say well Beyonce and Jay-Z ain't gave none well first of all I happen to know (laughs) specifically that they have their own foundations Mm -hmm. Rock Nation has a foundation Mm -hmm. Beyonce has Bay Good and that they're giving money to HBCUs and to folks in communities all over Jay-Z had his Water for Life campaign I mean they're doing really big things so let's not underestimate the power of this power couple and the impact that they're going to have on the black community Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, (laughs) there's so many beautiful things. Uh, We could go on for a whole nother hour talking about this woman and just the impact that she's had on the culture. Homecoming was just something to behold. I love how she went out on the other black national anthem, which is a remake of Before I Let Go, Frankie, Beverly, and Maze. There is not a black function. uh, (laughs) For those who do not know, there's not a family reunion, a barbecue, a cookout, a cookout, where folks do not sing and dance to Before Before I I Let Go. And I just thought it was so interesting that she chose that particular song. Before I let you go. I mean, aside from the fact that the lyrics really speak to all of the hard work that everybody put in for to make um, the Coachella performance, I, but it was just, I mean, it's probably the pinnacle of exp- of music for black people and, and our R&B tradition. Right. And so for her to float out on yes. her own special, you know, swagalicious version of Uncle 
Uncle Frankie and them. Right. Frankie Bellary and Mazes. Some folks was mad like about her redoing it. They but were. I, I mean, you can't, you can't touch. You, you know, we can have Listen. a whole other conversation about that. You, right. You're not supposed to touch Uncle Frankie, Uncle Frankie's before I let you go. You, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, but she, my daughter has a better appreciation for the song now. So I believe it. I believe it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. But the conversation does not have to end here. What did you love most about Beyonce Homecoming? Let us know on social media. We are at ASATT. TV on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Extra special thanks to Christine White and Deneen Milner, two of the co-hosts from A Seat at the Table. And that's it for today. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and special thanks today to LaRaven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer, Don Smith, our dean of grammar, Amy Kiley is our senior producer. We invite your comments, questions, and civil complaints at our Facebook group, GPB Radio On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. We're here Monday through Friday at 9 or anytime when you subscribe to our podcast. Hit the Programs tab for On Second Thoughts at gpbnews.org to subscribe. I'm Virginia Prescott. Have a great weekend from On Second Thought and GPB.